Research Fellow at the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit, uh, which is based at the Department of International Development that is organizing uh, tonight's event. It is uh, my great pleasure tonight to introduce a debate that launches uh, the book, which is called The Bottom-Up Politics, an agency-centered approach to globalization, which was uh, co-edited by Marlies Glasius, who is also joining us on a panel, and uh, by myself. Uh, this book was a very special project and a challenge for us as, uh, as editors because what we did, we set ourselves and our contributors uh, the task to honor and acknowledge, but to honor critically, the work of Professor Mary Caldo, who is Professor of Global Governance here at the school and who is the Director of the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit. And to quote Professor Anthony Giddens in a foreword to this volume, her inspirational work on new wars and global civil society in, she, in which she focused on the power of politics and the people has marked an intellectual shift in how we think about global issues from democracy to security. So in this book project in which we took up these ideas critically, we have been very, very privileged to be joined by eminent range of experts in disciplines, in a range of disciplines, and they all really enthusiastically accepted our invitation to re rethink the role of agency, and here I will not say specifically civil society because we'll, we'll get into the, the issues around that, and how to reappreciate the role of people in global politics. And Actually, just as we were making the final touches to the, to the manuscript, uh, getting it ready to send it to the publisher, we had the start <coughs> of the Arab Spring, which was another conf confirmation on how important it is to return to these issues and almost taking us back to the big people's revolutions that actually changed the global map uh, uh, at the end of communism, at the, at the end of the Cold War. So to give you an insight into the book and how it aims to reassess uh, this debate and actually to move it forward, uh, we are joined uh, by Helmut Anheim, who is a professor of sociology at the Hertie School of Governance uh, in Berlin, professor uh, at the end, Min Faber, who is professor emeritus at the Free University Amsterdam and visiting professor at the University of Houston. Of course, uh, Marlies Glasius will actually be the first speaker as a co-editor, but she's also a professor of citizens' involvement in war zones and post-conflict zones at the Faculty of Social Sciences at Free University of Amsterdam. I'm very pleased to see that in our audience we have uh, uh, other contributors uh, in the project, and I hope uh, they will also contribute uh, uh, to the debate. Unfortunately, we have not been able to invite them all to join us on stage. As a matter of fact, we'll have to uh, do a little bit of a music chairs uh, on, on the order of the organizers to, to, to fit here tonight uh, as well. So uh, each of our uh, contributors, so Marlies, uh, Helmut, and Mintian, will speak for 10 minutes, and then we'll invite uh, Mary Caldor to uh, respond. 
and after which we will open uh, the panel to your uh, questions. Uh, I should announce that the Twitter hashtag for the event is LSC Kaldor, LSC K-A-L-D-O-R. So uh, thank you for coming. I hope you uh, enjoyed tonight's discussion. And let's give a welcome to our I'll ask Marlise to speak first uh, because she will also <coughs> reflect uh, in more depth on uh, the content uh, itself. Now, I just realized um, looking beside me and also here at the front rows that actually I've known Mary Caldo a lot less long than. than my fellow pa panelists and also some of the people here in the audience, but it's still been a good decade. And before talking about this book, I, I want to say a few words also about another set of books that we've been involved in together. Um, I started a job at the LSE um, in early 2000 um, to put something together that was going to be called the Global Civil Society Yearbook. And it had been a weird job interview because I didn't have a very good idea what global civil society was, but they still hired me. Um, and then after almost two years of talking and putting together a global team and doing research and writing, we finally published a book and we're about to launch it um, in New York in September 2001. Um, I remember... Um, when September 11 happened, um, Mary being much more upset about it than I was, I think she was much better at reading the sign of the times and thinking ahead to the profound implications it was going to have um, for the world as a whole and for a project called Global Civil Society in particular, not just an academic but also a political project. And well, we've been plugging away at it for a decade and uh, there certainly wasn't an absence of global civil society and we've done research on the global social justice movement, on worldwide protests against the war in Iraq, the color revolutions and so on. It still sometimes felt like an uphill struggle. It felt like we were in the wrong decade and I thought we were in the wrong decade looking backwards to the 90s as the decade we should have been in. But while perhaps those books sometimes felt like they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, this book, being in honor of Mary Caldor, of course, read the sign of the times very correctly, <laughs> and it's in the right place at the right time. Um, Bottom-up politics came out in 2011, um, <coughs> after all hell had broken loose in Tunisia, Egypt, Greece, Spain, Burma, Libya, Syria, Oakland, New York, Paris, Russia, Burma, etc., etc. And time has decided that the person of the year for the year 2011 is the protester. And between all the protest movements and the financial crisis, it's been an exciting but also an apocalyptic year. I've myself sometimes thought it's 1968 and 1929 rolled into one. Times calls it 1848. But the historic comparisons only go so far. I think one thing that is for certain is that it will keep the likes of us in business for the next 25 years trying to understand what has just happened here. And that's actually in line with, with what this book was meant to be, is 
we announced to Mary on her birthday when we gave her the manuscript for this book, we said it's not about your legacy, it's more of a midterm review of your work. <laughs> so, uh, there you are. Um, so, uh, bottom up politics came too early to describe most of these developments. There's a hint of the Arab Spring, there's no mention of Occupy or the Indignada, sort of Russian protesters. Um, but it does, I think, offer some points of departure for um, reflecting and trying to understand these movements. I think <coughs> a lot of the reflection I've seen so far from other academics has been what we used to call infrastructural. So it's been very much about how these movements have used social media and what's new about that, about how and where they mobilize, about who they are, young, educated, unemployed people. And predictably also, of course, there's been very much a focus on the top, not the bottom. Whatever country it's been about, lots of speculation, who's going to be the next leader, what parliamentary parties will form, and so on and so forth. Of course, this is not unimportant, but I think we have more and different questions. And so I feel like a decade of doing the Global Civil Society yearbooks and now doing bottom-up politics have just begun to prepare us to tackle these events with better questions. And I will now talk a little bit about outlining a few points, primarily from bottom-up politics, also from the yearbooks, that I think <coughs> prepare us for asking the next set of questions. The first is... The book is called An Agency-Centered Approach to Globalization, and Denisa and I um, say quite a bit in the introduction about how we understand agency-centered, and certainly it doesn't mean for us anyone can do anything at any time and there aren't any obstacles. Um, so this is actually a quote from a bit of the co-authored um, uh, introduction that comes from Denisa. She says, while this volume takes on board that agentic power is not free-floating, but constituted by structures, it may simultaneously transform, structure and agency, structuration. The approach here takes agency as a starting point, where structure is shifting and unstable, framed and contested at a num number of scales. Now, Denisa wrote this before the financial crisis or the Arab Spring. <laughs> Say that. Um, and somewhere else um, I've written the contributions clearly put into perspective the notion that agency is purposive, rational, information driven or even always active agency. Sometimes reflection is the agency. And I use a quote from Norbert Alliance, uh, Elias who um, talks about a kind of sorcerer's apprentice agency. He says, people stand before the outcome of their own actions, like the apprentice magician before the spirit he has conjured up. And I think uh, what we end up being are chroniclers of and occasional devices to these sorcerer's apprentices. The other thing that's very interesting about bottom-up politics is, <coughs> without our explicitly asking this of the contributors, Every single one of them has actually emphasized, not NGOs, but non-institutionalized collective action. Um, there's the contribution by Sejkin Algin on sexuality, Desai on the Chipko movement in India, Chinking and Rangelov on the mobilization of women who have been sexually abused in the context of war. Of course, Rauf Ezat, who writes about Egypt. She actually lives in Tahrir Square. Um, and it all... Um, focuses on uninstitutionalized collective action, um, on unstable coalitions between underprivileged people and elites, 
And we use this word ordinary people, which usually bothers me a lot because you wonder, you know, what is actually an ordinary person and who are not ordinary people. Um, but I think in this book we try to spell out a little bit about what we mean by those so-called ordinary people, who those ordinary people are in the specific movements. <coughs> and a final point um, that we make in the book uh, relates to the targets of civil society. So who are they engaging with and trying to influence and change? Um, and I think in the Global Civil Society yearbooks, despite insisting that global civil society could be very local, we, did, we were inclined to have an assumption that the targets were something to do with global governance or bad global <coughs> governance, whether they were registering frustration and dissent vis-a-vis -vis international financial institutions or transnational companies, or they were in fact establishing an international criminal court or a global climate change regime or fighting HIV AIDS. It was always about global governance. Whereas 2011 is a bit different in this respect, and I think we prefigure that in bottom-up politics by showing how um, different uh, civil society actors go after different moving targets, sometimes at state level, sometimes higher up, sometimes lower down, sometimes different ones simultaneously. And in 2011, of course, on one level, the movements have been incredibly global. We still need to do more empirical work, I think, to trace the connections. But nobody can believe that what happened in Israel or in Russia was disconnected from what had happened in Egypt or in Greece. Um, yet the targets of the 2011 movements um, have been on the face of it very national. Um, certainly in the Arab Spring, but also now in Russia, they <coughs> seem to be asking not for less state, more civil society, like the 1980s dissidents, and I'd really like to hear from Mary whether she sees a difference there as well. Nor are they asking for global governance, like the 1990s civil society actors, but for better, fairer, cleaner, more accountable state institutions. Um, one possible exception to this might, on the face of it, be Occupy. Occupy doesn't seem to be solely targeting the state, but also very much bankers, transnational corporations, but also consumerism, the capitalist system. Um, yet the state, I think, is very far from absent. I tried to explain to um, my nine-year-old daughter what Occupy was about, having taken her to Occupy Amsterdam. And I explained how you know they had their frustrations with the bankers. Um, and she said very emphatically, no, no, it's not the bankers. They're protesting against the government because it's their job to make sure that the bankers don't spell, spend people's money in a way that is stupid or they make themselves rich. It's the government responsibility. So that's the new generation's take on what Occupy is up to. <laughs> now, we used to divide the yearbook into ideas, issues, and infrastructure, although we've sometimes found it difficult to keep them separate. And in the early editions, we always had a plethora of issues, too many issues. We were okay on ideas, but we struggled a bit with understanding what infrastructure was. And the strange thing is that now, as I try to look at 2011, it seems to me that um, the hardest thing to do is to divide the political structure, the struggles we're witnessing, into specific issues. Whereas some of the most interesting things about them appear to be that they're at the crossroads of what we used to call ideas and what we call infrastructure. 
<coughs> an obvious infrastructural point is that at the heart are educated young people concerned simultaneously about their economic and their political disenfranchisement. This has been pointed out by other people, but what gets overlooked, I think, is how that feeds into a set of ideas, and they're very resistant to calling it an ideology, but a set of ideas nonetheless, um, that has an economic and a political side to it. One term that has kept cropping up with demonstrators on both sides of the Mediterranean, and I think also on the other side of the Atlantic, is the notion of dignity. Dignity, to my knowledge, comes from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which speaks of the dignity and worth of the human person as the basis for human rights. And in some ways, this emphasis on dignity, which I've seen in the language of, of um, Syntagma Square and Tahrir Square, um, seems to resolve the binary distinction between freedom and equality that has been at the heart of political left-right distinctions in, in Western uh, liberal democracies. It has a socio-economic element, it has a political participation element, and a respect element. And I want to trace how it has come to crop up simultaneously in these different sites of protest. Um, and I think there's another element where ideas bleed into infrastructure, what, again, Tahrir and Syntagma and Occupy have in common is a sense of doing democracy in the square. The very heavy insistence on not speaking for others, rejecting traditional representation in favor of deliberation. Now, many believe this to be a weakness of Occupy, and perhaps in the short term it even is. Um, but I'm hopeful that it carries a deeper commitment to democratic ways of doing things into other spheres of life. Um, now, I've had this conversation with Mary before, and she said, yeah, but this was also the case in 1968. Now, I came across a very veteran activist in um, Occupy Amsterdam who'd been through 1968, through the squat movement, through the peace movement, and he said it's much deeper now, this commitment. I don't know, that's... Um, what my quantitative <laughs> colleagues call uh, N is 1. I still wanted to put that to you. Um, and connected to this, this um, doing democracy in a square and this emphasis on dignity is a commitment to pluralism and nonviolence, which again runs through the protests from the Arab world to the US and Western Europe to Russia to Burma, which is not to say that those commitments are always honored and not under threat trying to provoke violence and then sow discord in order to crack down are, of course, common responses to civil resistance movements. And it's not the case that in 2011 um, such responses inevitably fail. But the set of values are very reminiscent from the ideas of dissident civil society activists in the 1980s, both in Eastern Europe and in South America, which I've tried to trace and compare in a chapter of bottom-up politics. Now I identified there as four central values, solidarity, public truth-telling, ideological pluralism, and nonviolence. Now what I tried to argue there was that the depth of commitment to these values in the movements might be predictors, not of their immediate success in overthrowing governments, but of their long-term chances of eventually evolving into more sustainable civil society-driven democracies. Now, this was trying to argue backwards from the different revolutions in Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet region, 
It's not by any means a definitive scientific benchmark, but it could be a different way of looking at the current movements using less of the traditional social movement studies lens that focuses on aims and means, targets and repertoires, and more of a focus on ideas and values. Also, it would focus on a different and earlier tipping point in these revolutions. Not the tipping point that gets the government overthrown, but the one that causes people to throw off their lethargy or their fears and go out to protest. Now, by this benchmark, the Green Movement in Iran was a success. The Occupy Indian and Yado movements are significant social facts, and the current movements in Russia and Syria are crucial elements of world history, even if they cannot reach their immediate aims now. So let me just conclude then by saying that by that benchmark, what we should ask of the people of Syria, and I'm also trying to provoke Minchan a bit, because I know he'll speak about Libya and Syria, is not how can we help, which we should ask, but without assuming that we necessarily can, nor should we be asking, will you succeed? What are your chances? But rather what we should be asking, what I know Mary has been asking people in different parts of the world all her life, is how on earth are you finding the courage and the inspiration to do this? Yes, uh, because, uh, good evening, everybody. When, um, when I was a student, I went to um, a lecture by... Uh, Paul Feyerabend, the philosopher, and he was uh, fairly old by then, and he went on stage, and he said he has two lectures prepared, a lecture A and a lecture B, and we could choose, right? and I won't tell you which one uh, he held, but um, I was thinking, coming here today, that I would give you lecture A. And lecture A would have been, because you're not going to hear it, it would have been about my contribution to the book, uh, which is about civility. And the argument is that uh, the function of civil society is to grow, is to nurture civility. And I came to that after a long struggle with trying to find out what is, in a way, the dependent variable behind the research that we've been doing in the Global Civil Society yearbook. And civility seemed to me be the uh, dependent variable that what we want to explain. So that's in the book, and you can, you can all read it. I want to give you Lecture B. Lecture B is about an argument that I still have not fully thought through, and a nice opportunity, like the one tonight, doesn't offer itself every day, but it's an argument that you may find intriguing, and it speaks very clearly, much more clearly, to the topic tonight than my lecture A would have done. Right? And this is the question, what can civil society do to help prevent a repeat of the financial crisis that has, I think, captured the world's attention for nearly four years now? Right? So it's a big question, and uh, it's probably no surprise that I haven't really thought it through till the end. But you, uh, it, it's also a very simple argument. Uh, behind it, uh, if I manage to find out how I can get the PowerPoint started here, I could even show you a few slides, but I was told that uh, the main argument and then the empirical evidence behind it is going to be uh, on the center's website later on. Now, here's the argument. 
it's fed by, there's a bit of Polanyi in there, a lot of new institutionalism, uh, Douglas North figures, and um, also Ralph Darndorf and his approach to how societies manage conflict. And at, oh good, thank you. Um, uh, what I'm, I'm trying to, to argue is that uh, societies have to find divide institutions, so the rules of the game in the name of Douglas North, and divide organizations and tools to address given problems. Right? And that's what many of us uh, teach our students, and you can easily see this right here. Either you have the right institutions and they are commensurate with the problem you have to address, or you don't, or you have to write organizations or you don't. That gives you one of those uh, favorite two-by-two two tables. Um, and what I want to point your attention to is that we have various uh, combinations that are more or less critical. The worst is where we have an under-institutionalization or we have the wrong institutions and we don't have the right organizations to deal with. Right? And I suggest that global finance or the financial world generally is in that corner. Right? There are other areas where we actually did find the right institutions and the right organizations after certain trial and error. Right? That's, for example, how labor and capital are dealing with in most developed uh, market economies, we have, in the meantime, an arrangement how we settle uh, dispute. We didn't have that uh, for a long time. And there are these off-diagonal uh, combinations that give you either a uh, situation where we have the right institutions, but we don't have the right organizations, or we have the right organizations and not the right institutions. But, but what I want to point out to is that the world of finance is a good example of an under-institutionalization or what has been called an institutional void. Right? And the question is, can civil society institutions help recapture or fill an institutional capture of finance or fill this institutional void? Right? When you first say that, well, how can little civil society institutions, these small actors, how can they reach to the heights of Wall Street? Isn't that too big for them to fill? Not too big to fail, but too big to fill. Well, let's think about it constructively. Right? How could you generate an institutional and an organizational field that has the capacity to deal with what is undoubtedly the most globalized and the most difficult to regulate and the most difficult to capture subsystem we have today. Well, go back 30 or 40 years, right? How could you ever have thought that a little institution like Greenpeace could at one point in time capture environmental policies? Right? Go back 25 years. How could you have ever imagined that a small group of anti-nuclear power activists right, roaming about in the northern German plains would lay the foundation <laughs> of a total reversal of atomic or nuclear energy policy in the world's fourth or fifth largest economy? Right? I think the difference between Greenpeace in the 70s and Shell in the 70s 
are about equivalent to what we have today between civil society organizations and global finance. I thought, but that's not the case. It's actually worse. Because if you then start looking at the organizations that exist, civil society organizations that exist in the United States at the transnational level, and you compare that to what is going on, let's say, in the field of the environment, in human rights, uh, international development, and all the other fields, you find out exactly what is pointed out in this little corner, a total neglect, a, rel uh, no, no, a, a relative paucity and dearth of organizations there. And that's the, the charts I want to show you. Uh, this is a, a very important picture because you see over a hundred years that the happy explosion of the financial flows that happened uh, transnationally. So just keep that explosion in mind as we uh, go along. In the last 10 years, right, you had this uh, increase in the magnitude of financial flows. And would you expect, you could in fact expect that there is an equivalent increase in the, in the civil society attention paid to it. And that's exactly what we don't find. Right? Uh, you can't see that, that's a very unfair chart, but when you look at it later, <laughs> it really shows you that there is virtually no civil society component in the field of finance in the United States. It's very little, it's a rounding hour really. Right. The, uh, this is the number you need to, to look at. It's just less than 1% um, of the total non-profit sector in the United States is in finance. These are the international NGOs. And, and you can easily see that there are not, not many. There's just um, 800 out of, uh, where's the total end here? It's in the, it's in the 30, 40,000. Right, so very few of them work. And in fact, rather than increasing a lot, they actually decreased. There are fewer of them that, uh, than we had in the past. I still don't fully trust the statistics here, but what, what it don't show is that as finance increased in terms of magnitude and the flows of what goes on, the NGOs have not kept pace. And then I thought, perhaps this is all going on on the internet. Right? They're no longer these old-fashioned NGOs like Greenpeace. No, no, they do it differently. They organize on various platforms. But I just look at those numbers and how small they are compared to what you have for other organizations like Human Rights Watch or Greenpeace or Amnesty International. Right? Those websites apparently don't capture the interest of a lot of people. But what made the difference is the website activism of the Occupy movement that happened to take root in the last couple of months. And here you see uh, some, more, uh, some recent statistics on how these websites are being uh, contacted. So much more than the established NGOs up here. Right? In particular, Finance Watch and, and related also attack Right? They do not get the popular movement element incorporated. But what you need to change the world, so to speak, or to 
rein finance in to re-embed it into society right, is a popular movement behind it, like the peace movement or maybe a different movement or like the environmental movement. And here is, I think, a beginning of it. But will that uh, be enough? And the argument, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to the, the, the end of my presentation because I know the 10 minutes are up very soon. Uh, the argument I'm making that we need, at the global level, a concerted effort. And that should not be an effort by governments. It should also not be an effort by, by regulators. They, they can do their thing, but it has to be something of civil society. And we need to combine the popular sentiments that are being expressed and the popular wisdom and the visions of the Occupy movements with an expertise that is needed to capture finance. So in other words, what we need is to, we need to build an informed leadership for the new Occupy movements. Not alone for the Occupy movements, but a new, I like to think of them as a new infrastructure of experts and organizations that are able of dealing with the financial institutions the way Greenpeace does with Shell and the way that uh, Human Rights Watch does with various governments around the world. And at the moment, we don't have that expertise. The expertise that we have is isolated. That's why those uh, websites do not capture the attention of people. Right? So we need to have a concerted effort on the proposal that I'm making. And here's where I haven't really come to the end of my thinking, and I'd be very interested in your reactions to it. Could we think of a multi-year investment of probably several billion dollars where we try to come up with an alternative financial system and we make sure that that alternative financial system carries a certain popular sentiment with it? And I think the resources to do that are there. Uh, what is lacking, I think, is the will of some of those who have the resources to engage with uh, the new kinds of movements that are emerging. So I think a sustained investment is needed, but it's um, peanuts compared to what we all are paying at the moment. Thank you so much. Let me see. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, first things first. I'm really happy to be here and quite honored uh, to be asked to write a contribution for Mary Calder's book. And uh, I have to say I know her quite long. And I have some special memories to her. And I will mention you too. The first time I met Mary was in 1981. That's long ago, in July. And we were invited, we from the Netherlands, a group of us in the peace movement, to come over and to listen to the celebrities of the peace movement in Great Britain, of course. And I, I remember it was in the um, Quaker's house in London here. And the, f 
the, the, we entered the room, and the problem was that nobody was saying anything. They were there in a meeting, and we entered, and nobody said, hello, how are you? <laughs> nice to see you. We just sat down, the two of us, in a corner, and now we noticed who was who. And so there was Mary Calder, and uh, Edward Thompson, and Bruce Kent, and Ken Coates, and all those kind of big names we'd heard in Europe, but we'd never met them before. And I, I remember in, during the break, uh, uh, I introduced myself to Mary, and I thought, what do I have to say to break the ice? And so I said to her, how old are you? <laughs> it was a typical Dutch question, right? And she said, um, well, I'm 25. And then she said to me, what, what about you? And I thought, oh gosh, 25, and I'm so old already. So I said, I, I was born in World War II. And she looked at me and she said, it's okay. <laughs> this was the very first discussion I had with her on the war. It's okay. Well, the, the, the other thing is that um, I think it was the next day already that we had another discussion because she told me that um, when she was six years old, she was arrested uh, by the police and brought to a police station. Can you remember, I mean, this girl? And it was, she was at a, at a demonstration, but I think it was unnotified. It was a demonstration against nuclear weapons. And so I said, well, what happened to you? I said, what happened to you in, the, in this awful police station? And she said, my mother was there to protect me. <laughs> and so this was the first discussion I had with Mary on human security. Human security from below, people protecting people. So since that time, we had our debates on those two main topics, uh, uh, wars and human security bottom-up politics. And so what, what I wanted to do is basically one thing is to talk a little bit with you about a very new phenomenon uh, nowadays in, in the world of real politics dealing with wars and that is the phenomenon which is called R2P, the responsibility to protect. This is accepted by the international community, by the UN Security Council that this is a way to approach conflict areas. We have a responsibility to protect people there. And so you might ask yourself the question, is that possible? I mean, if there is a war in Afghanistan or in Iraq or wherever going on, Libya, is it possible to protect people? Well, the point was that both Mary and I independently wrote a piece for open democracy, and we argued that's not possible. The way in which it is done by the international community, by sending an air force uh, to bump the, uh, the, um, the Libyan troops, the Gaddafi troops who were around Benghazi, <laughs> and, um, and then to return to their base. I mean, how do you protect people? If you want to protect people, you have to be on the ground and protect them. That was basically our argument. I think by writing that article and 
using that argument, I think I was wrong. I was really wrong. And um, why? Because I realized that in the end, if you want to protect people, what you have to do is to defeat the enemy. You have to get rid of the enemy. I mean, you can stand around people, but if the enemy is coming, what do you do? You wait till he attacks and kills many people, and then you strike back, maybe too late. Well, you have to be first. And wasn't it, wasn't it a way of protection, Benghazi, that NATO sent this airships and bomb the positions of Gaddafi around the city of Benghazi? According to the people in Benghazi, it was. It was a protection for them. And it is very difficult to deny that. If I was in the same situation, if I had lived in Benghazi, I would have felt relieved. So that is, so the, 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 the main point I want to make is that um, protection by the international community, and the way the international community understand that notion, can be better done now from the air than it has ever been done before on the ground. Try to think about that, if that is true. And there are examples in the past where an air operation really worked. Example, Kurdistan, 1991. The Kurds, I mean, the, the no-fly zone above Kurdistan, the Kurds were delighted up to now. It brought them independence, or semi-independence. It was a responsibility, a responsibility to protect operation. And so I tried to figure out, I mean, what, what you can do, for instance, in a country like Iraq. I traveled a lot in Iraq, because after the, uh, before the intervention, uh, the American-British intervention in 2003, and after that, and in particular after that, I realized that because there was no alternative, there was no state anymore, the state collapsed due to the intervention, the Iraqi state, although it was cruel, but all the institutions were collapsed as well. And so there was no law and order, whatever. And so that's what happened. So the question was, for many people, the question was, who is going to, to protect us? We're all insecure. The answer is, you have to do it yourself. And so everywhere in this whole country, there were this kind of new security communities and new security zones, tribes, sects, uh, neighborhoods, whatever. They were all around there. And I was trying to figure out and talking to them, uh, how, do you, how do you defend yourself? How do you protect yourself? And who are your friends? Because that's another thing. In a war, one of the main principles is that the enemy of your enemy is your friend. That's the way it works. That's the way war works. 
you always have to look for the enemy of your enemy because he's your friend and you've seen that in, in particular if you go down in, if, you, if you go down in the, in the reality of Iraq where you had so many neighborhoods, tribes, sects, whatever trying to protect themselves they were constantly looking for the enemies of their enemies in order to reach a kind of critical uh, how do you say advantage to the others and that's what happened by the way and the Americans during those years understood that that they couldn't win this war by themselves on the ground but that they have to find the enemies of their enemies and they found them the problem nowadays is that since the Americans left uh, Iraq is falling apart in sects again and you see the same kind of discussions coming over and over again well, how, I mean, what to do do we have to keep this country together or is there a possibility or is there an option to follow the Kurdish line because the Kurds are more independent than ever before do the Sunnis have to do the same those areas do the Shiites are the Shiites going to do this no the Shiites for sure not if you see the policies of Maliki the president nowadays of Iraq I'm not going to say that it's a duplicate of Saddam Hussein, but it is walking in that direction. And that's, of course, also a way, I mean, to, um, uh, to, to, to organize a new security system, which is an oppressive system. It's not a, a system that brings you security, by the way. It kills the society, and people are going to organize themselves against the oppressor. If it comes from inside or outside, it's, the, it's basically the same. So what, what I'm, the point I wanted to, to make is um, that um, the responsibility to protect is the new phenomenon adopted by the international community to go to war again. Nowadays, after a long period where we were basically rather reluctant the international community to go to war now there is a new instrument which makes it possible to go to war because wars are now there to protect people on the ground and there are examples yeah. and I, I give you the example of Kurdistan which you can well Libya is another example the Syrians many of the Syrians are waiting for a kind of safe area on the protection of the international community, maybe from the air, but where they can organize their lives. One final critical remark about my own country, uh, why I became so interested in this, um, in this whole phenomenon of security zones, security communities, the role of the international community, responsibility to protect, has every t everything to do with Srebrenica. The case where there were uh, tens of thousands of Muslims in an enclave protected by the international community against the enemy, the Serbs. And the protectors were Dutch soldiers. And when the Serbs came, instead of understanding <coughs> by the Dutch that now you have to protect the people, by fighting side by side 
with the same people you have to protect. There's no alternative than to fight. They didn't do anything on the country. They handed over all the people who came to their compound to the Serbs, who separated the man from the woman and children and killed the man. And in my country, it is completely impossible to face that reality and to make it clear that we failed. On the contrary, the story now is that we have saved the lives of over 25,000 women and children. The women and children are, were saved, but not by us, but by the Serbs. They deported them while the men were killed. And we assisted, that's the word we use, the Serbs in the deportation, which we called an evacuation. I'm saying in my own country, we collaborated with a deportation. But that is a curse, which you should not mention in the Netherlands. That's the situation. And that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. I'm going to give lecture A. <laughs> um, there's lots to say to what everybody has said just now, particularly to Minchan, though I'm happy to see some of my students in the audience and they know what I think about R2P because that's what we talked about this afternoon. Um, but actually, I thought I was going to talk about the book. So I think I'll stick to lecture A and talk about the book. Just one little correction to what's been said so far. I was not six when I was arrested, nor did my mother come to the prison. What actually happened was I was 15, and actually it was the... Um, you lied to me. It was, it was um, many of you will remember, it was 1961, and Bertrand Russell led us all sitting down in Trafalgar Square against the... Uh, resumption of the, uh, against the was it the failure of the partial test ban treaty and we all got arrested and my mother was rather annoyed with me actually for staying so long in the square and getting arrested but it turned out unfortunately that I was underage I was 15 and so the police sent me home and very humiliatingly <laughs> in a taxi <laughs> <laughs> so that is the story of me getting arrested at the age of it was 15, not 6. Um, so, what I want to say, first of all, I really want to say a huge thanks to Marlies and Denisa. And I also want to say it's a really good book. And, you know, what is really striking when you read it is that the individual chapters are really serious and substantial. And so it's well worth reading. I don't think you'll have got much of an idea of what it's about from today, <laughs> but you know I do recommend it. And I just wanted to say one personal note, that the last year, for all of us, but me especially, I think, has been an incredibly difficult year. We had this terrible crisis over Libya, we had the closure of our centre, it's just been awful. And the book which they gave me a year ago, the manuscript, was a kind of comfort blanket 
every time I felt really depressed, I would go and read a chapter, and it would cheer me up. So for that also, I thank Marlise and Denisa. Um, so that was the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want is to say something about agency, because I think this is very much Marlies and Denise's book. And I was trying to think, is agency that important in my work? Um, you know, I was trying to think about it because I wasn't quite aware of it. I know there are certain places where I talk about agency, um, and indeed bottom-up politics. And so... I've always, I, I was trying to think, what, what do I think is important? And one of the things that really struck me was actually, I don't know where she is, she was here, Sabine. <coughs> Sabine's chapter really struck me, because Sabine, I think, says something very, very interesting in her chapter. She says, you know, we're wrong to think of globalization as a material, structural phenomenon. It's actually a different way of seeing the world. And globalization became important after the Cold War when we'd lost our dominant bipolar way of seeing the world. And globalization became the important concept. And um, I, that really struck me as that, in a way, very much captures what I feel I've always been trying to do, which is that I've always been trying to find different ways of seeing the world. Um, you know, I think our job as social scientists is to tell a simplifying story about a complex world and to uh, constantly question the simplifying stories that are told uh, by politicians, by the dominant orthodox social scientists. And, and I think that's what I've struggled to do all my life, is to tell different stories. And I think I discovered during the 80s that talking to dissidents in Eastern Europe, being involved with the peace movement, uh, enabled me to develop a different story. <laughs> and indeed, if I think about what happened in 89, certainly it's true that in the lecture that they quote on the ideas of 1989, I emphasize agency because I was extremely irritated by the way everybody claimed that 89 was due to them. The Americans said it was because of they deployed cruise missiles and threatened Russia, and the Russians said it was Gorbachev, and the Poles said it was them, the Pope. And I sort of, <laughs> and I wanted to say, no, actually, you know, we in the peace movement really were the first to challenge the status quo. Um, the opposition in Eastern Europe were actually the people who organized the demonstrations. If they hadn't been there to organize the demonstrations, it wouldn't have happened. So I did use in that argument agency in just the sense that they're using it. But actually, when I think about it, what I feel was really important was that through the dialogue between the peace movement and the dissidents, we came up with a different story of the Cold War. Uh, we came up with the story of the Cold War less as a bipolar conflict and more as a mechanism of international order, a sort of Foucauldian disciplinary technology, a way in which... And it was by telling a different story about the Cold War that we were able to sort of op make all kinds of openings and to develop a new strategy. And that's what I think is absolutely critical. 
so um, so in a way I'm, I'm less interested in bottom up politics per se but more in the way that an engagement with bottom up politics helps you to develop alternative interpretations in the way that the usual preoccupations of academics with their colleagues work doesn't do <laughs> so that's the point I wanted to make now I've always been experimenting with lots of different concepts and you'll find them peppered throughout the book human security civil society cosmopolitanism and I wanted to say because I thought Minchan and Helmut were going to talk about them something about those new con those concepts um, I'm very fond of the cosmopolitan concept, but I didn't really pursue it because I didn't think it had that much resonance. But what I think was its advantage was that it combined two things. One was a belief in the equality of human beings, and that was combined with the idea that there are different ways of being human and a celebration of different ways of being human. And in Minchan's piece, he's very, in his pessimistic mood, he's very critical of the lack of cosmopolitanism among the Dutch peacekeepers or whatever. And I agree with that, that he kind of confuses cosmopolitanism with individualism. I mean, I think the greatest cosmopolitans that I know are very often local people who are tremendously brave in protecting others, our friend Arzu for example, in Baku, who's a great human rights defender. She's the true cosmopolitan in my book. Now, both um, Helmut and Heber, who's not here, Heber's our colleague and friend who actually lives in Tahir Square and runs a democracy center in Tahir Square. Heber's written a piece which is almost the same as Helmut's, except what Helmut calls civility, she calls the Uma. <laughs> and she makes it clear by the Ummah she, she doesn't mean just the community of believers she means the right path and I was quite struck because what strikes me very much from the time I was in Bosnia to now in Afghanistan that when you talk to people who call themselves civic activists on the ground they don't define civil society in the way we do in the West I mean, we tend to define it in institutional terms as between the state and the market or as associations. For them, civil society is all those who are preoccupied with the public good as opposed to private and sectarian interests. We're concerned with the public interests. So in Bosnia, it was the people who cared about Bosnia-Herzegovina and not about Serbs. Croats and Muslims. In Afghanistan, it's very much those who talk about Afghanistan as a whole. And the same in Iraq. There's a very strong Iraqi national interest. Um, and I think that's an idea, actually, that really reflects Hegel, who was one of the great sort of philosophers of civil society. Because for Hegel, civil society was the arena where we become public persons where our private interests are subsumed into a private debate. So it was very much about values rather than about association. So I'm really agreeing with you, Helmut, but putting it in a different way. 
And then finally, I wanted to say something about Europe. I'm really pleased that Geneviève is here. There's a very nice piece in the book by Geneviève and Mary about Europe. And I had one thought which I wanted to mention, and then I wanted to tell you about our latest project. So the one thought was, they talk very much about the failure of the European Union in uh, the former Yugoslavia, and I agree with that. But what I also think is that the former Yugoslavia was a learning process, and that all kinds of things came out of it, maybe too late to make that intervention a success, but nevertheless they had an enormous influence on the whole construction of the European security and defense policy to which we were very involved in writing about human security. And I think one of the reasons why our concept of human security, which we developed in reports for Javier Solana, had such resonance was precisely because of the learning process that was involved in Yugoslavia. And I think perhaps what's happening now, they criticize what's happening now, is in effect there's been a kind of unlearning process as a result of the war on terror. And that's a whole other subject which we don't have time to go into. But our new project, and this is what I wanted to finish on, uh, our new project we call subterranean politics. So maybe that's a bit like bottom-up politics, and it's about subterranean politics in Europe. Um, and what we're really trying to capture, and that's why we call it subterranean politics, is the process through which grassroots activism becomes visible. Because actually what's interesting about this moment in time Everyone is talking about the wave of global protest, but if you look at the European context, as a matter of fact, uh, what is happening is uh, the sort of mobilizations that have been happening have actually been happening over the last 10 years, and we've tracked them in the Global Civil Society yearbook through the European Social Forum, the marches against Iraq, they were often bigger and more significant. But I think the real difference, and that's in a way the first finding of our project, is that for the first time these protests strike a chord with the mainstream. They have a sort of resonance. Whereas the protests of the last 10 years were constantly marginalized, constantly treated as unimportant, suddenly there's a moment, whether it's because of the financial crisis, whether it's because of the success of Arab Spring, where the media, uh, you know, the Financial Times and The Guardian go and interview people in St. Paul's, where the media, where the intellectuals all think this is terribly important. And that's the process, I think, that's happening. And that's, in a way, why we called it subterranean. It's, 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 it's grassroots politics becoming visible. And so I think what we're concerned with is less to capture this moment in Helmut's sense to... Uh, you know, it seems to me that at this moment the key to the financial crisis is at the level of Europe. It's about the European Central Bank, it's about the financial transactions tax, it's about having a fiscal union, and actually another of our findings is that most people who are active in the protests are 
as it were, indifferent about Europe. They take Europe for granted. I think England, not Britain, is the only exception where there's positive anti-Europeanism. But <laughs> everywhere else, um, what you find is they just assume Europe and they don't really have anything to say about it. But in fact, the intellectuals, the mainstream, which is absorbing theirs, a proliferation of reinventing, refounding, alternatives, that's where it's sort of happening. And the question is, can these levels be brought together to resolve the crisis? So that's the next challenge. But anyway, all I want to say is do read the book. mind that I wasn't a very strict chair, allowing the panelists to develop uh, their ideas. But what I would like to do now is just, uh, let's say, collect five or so questions, just to give us a taste what kind of thoughts you are having on this issue, and then maybe have a one quick round and see what, what the time is, because we will need to end up promptly at 8 o'clock. Okay? We have a roving mic, so, okay, there is a, the lady there, she's there. Uh, first of all, thank you for your talk and the very interesting ideas that were outlined and especially the um, addressing not only the grassroots as something very abstract but actually pointing towards really individual agency in all these global movements. Um, what I'm especially um, sorry, what I'm especially interested in would be the connection that I haven't really seen drawn between the civility and the notion of a certain kind of morality that is driving this agency. Um, and the link that this could have to the political in form of the nation. Because while we might see that political movements become much more um, individual agency and, and morality centered, um, we still are bound up in the, in the political sphere in this nation state system. And I guess the, um, th this becomes most obvious in the uh, idea of the responsibility to protect. So. Um, and how far are these ideas actually reconcilable or do we have to overcome certain um, classical political notions? Thank you. Any questions there? Yes, thanks for a very interesting talk. I was just wondering if the panel thought that uh, new technology could aid, um, you know, could, can, or, and continue to aid bottom-up politics. Uh, yeah, thank you as well. Hello. Um, the a lot of the issues that you've been raising seem to be issues that don't really lend themselves to looking at them just within the ivory tower. Right? There's a strong impetus to actually go out and engage with the world. Um, so I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about your your experiences and your thoughts on how your your insights and your work can be combined with. Um, you know the insights and the work of people that you're researching and that you're talking about, and how you can mutually, hopefully, benefit from each other. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Another of our contributors. Hello. 
it was very kind uh, by Mary Calder to stick to uh, lecture A. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that uh, um, we have been used uh, to polemics. And I would like to ask, don't you think uh, that uh, what Mietje uh, Jan um, Faber said about the possibility to divide uh, groups into enemies and uh, allied friends and so on somehow underlies very much uh, the concept of bottom-up politics? In other words, don't you think that the experience of, for example, the European nuclear disarmament and so on, uh, of the Helsinki Citizen Assembly, was precisely an attempt to bridge uh, these gaps uh, by not taking side uh, from one side uh, or another side, but to try to put together uh, possible conflicts uh, in a, a different way? Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe we have a few minutes for the I think we should privilege Mary. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm not going to answer all the questions because I'll let other people. Um, but let me start with the ivory tower question. I mean, for me, it's always been absolutely critical being an engaged scholar. That's what I regard myself as being. And um, I've always, I think actually that if you really want to change the world, that makes you very serious about your work because you have to get things right. And, you know, it's very interesting to me that, you know, I've often had, a, it, it's often been difficult in that sense that people feel if you're engaged, you're not objective. But on the other hand, people who advise governments are often considered to be objective even though they're advising governments. So actually, I think political engagement is very, very important for serious scholarship. So it's about caring about issues, but it's also, I think, looking at groups, um, looking at groups of people who are often excluded from the official discourse. Um, you know, one of the very striking things I always say about 1989 is that in the immediate aftermath, everybody, uh, all, there was a huge sort of um, uh, introspection among think tanks and governments. Why would, were we not able to predict 1989? And it's almost become a kind of truism that nobody predicted 1989. It's absolutely not true that nobody predicted 1989. I'm always fond, I didn't bring it with me, of quoting from E.P. Thompson in 1982, saying that we've begun a movement that will end the Cold War. And it'll happen very quickly, uh, not in a slow process. And I remember thinking at the time, is he really right? And he was right. But I think all of us who got involved with dissidents in the late 80s absolutely knew it was all going to change. But interesting, and, and why did we know? Not because we were cleverer than other people, but because we studied society rather than the state. And um, I think you can have lots of other examples of similar types. So the ivory tower point's very important. Um, of course I disagree with Minchan about... Um, um, I mean, I'm very skeptical about responsibility to protect, and what does make me feel um, very worried, really, is whether the kind of 
after all the experiences we've had, whether the kind of civilian protection that I've been pushing for can really happen, because it never does. And, you know, I, I feel very, as I was telling, so I'd hope the students who are here don't mind me repeating it, I feel quite conflicted about Libya, because I don't think that was a responsibility to protect operation. It was NATO intervening on the side of the rebels, and I'm very, very happy that Gaddafi was overthrown. Uh, but it does have the question, but that's not the same as responsibility to protect, and I'd like to think there could have been an alternative of protecting civilians and allowing for a nonviolent overthrow of Gaddafi, because if you do do things through war, it has very bad consequences. It empowers the people with the guns. Uh, and you see that over and over again. And now in Libya, you know, the big problem is all the militias and how they're the jockeying for political power and whether this will not only will, you know, even if you avoid violence in the future, it will mean all kinds of people who normally through a political process based on discussion and discourse won't become key in the political process. So, you know, I don't agree that you can protect people by killing enemies. Of course, sometimes you might need to use force to protect people, as the Dutch certainly should have done in Srebrenica. But actually, what happens in Afghanistan, where the Americans are trying to defeat Taliban and Al-Qaeda, is that they just create more and more enemies and more and more people get killed even though their airstrikes are now extremely precise and they minimize civilian casualties, ordinary Afghans say, you know, we don't care if you minimize civilian. Every time you do an airstrike, the Taliban counterattack, and civilians get killed. So does it matter, you know, whether you didn't cause the civilian casualties? So I'm extremely doubtful about war as a way of protecting people even though I still hold to that view that you and I developed together many years ago, <laughs> that there is a role uh, for military forces in protecting people robustly, as in Rwanda, or as they should have done in Srebrenica. And I actually, I've been thinking a lot about the friend's enemy point. I mean, what I feel is that there are, that, that, that communication uh, there are different ways. Violence is a form of communication, but violence as a form of communication, it imposes a binary view of the world. You can only have friends and enemies. That's when you become a Serb and a Croat or a Jew and an anti-Semite. If somebody's trying to kill you, and Sartre made that point because you're a Jew, you suddenly start to feel like you're a Jew, not a cosmopolitan. And violence creates this sort of binary identity Whereas through discussion, you can have multiple identities. You can, have, you can see the world in different ways. Nonviolent communication offers many more possibilities. So, um, so I'm very skeptical about a friend's enemy view of describing the world. Yeah, I just want to respond to two short points. One is the one about the ivory tower, um, which is just by way of saying something about Mary. So I started my first job after my PhD with her, and I think after three or six months or so, I expressed my 
surprise and slight frustration to be at the LSE when my intention had been after my PhD to go and work for an NGO for a human rights organization and um, somehow I ended up here instead and she said oh but it means that you're free to be an activist because when you work for an NGO you'll have to always tow the organizational line and you won't have the freedom to <laughs> actually be an activist and, and indeed I think I, I have kind of very much learned from, from um, the way you see it but also some of my human rights professors that the theory is out in the street so if you want to develop new ideas in social science, it's social science science after all, you don't do it by sitting in office, you do it by going out and talking to people in the street and you probably add something and your own interpretation to their ideas but that's where it comes from. But I also wanted to address um, the point that was raised over there about the, the tension between um, the morality, the values, the civility of movements and then the old nation state system. Uh, first of all, to be a little bit skeptical about this, it, it, it's not the case that everyone who goes out to protest in the street is a saint. You know, um, They are there because of ideas, because of um, something non-material often, although there's also material elements involved. Um, but to immediately call it civility, morality, let's be a, bit, a little bit cautious. Um, but what I also wanted to say, and that relates actually to, to what Helmut was putting here, was the conundrum of what happens when a movement gets taken up and, and it actually reaches the corridors of power and could be argued it comes out from the cold. And you gave the example of Greenpeace. I've done myself uh, a lot of work on, on what led to the creation of the International Criminal Court. And what happens, of course, when you come in is that your ideas for radical change get co-opted and watered down. And even if there is change, you also become the next hegemony, the next ivory tower that someone else then needs to knock on. And I don't think that's a plea for saying, oh, let's stay pure as movements and stay out in the street and not try to influence people. But I do think that's a bit of a conundrum. And if uh, your notion should succeed in terms of uh, financial reform from the bottom up, then that also will inevitably be part of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> 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 Where to start? Um, well, let me say, let me basically say two things. Uh, one is, um, I, I've been um, active for a long time. I'm a mathematician, by the way, by, by education, right? And um, and, but I've been active in the peace movement for quite some time. And uh, that's where I met uh, Mary. And um, well, my view is that it is extremely important, and she's very good in that, in to develop an, an, another story uh, what's about what's going on than the classic one. So, um, which is important for the movement, which is important for yourself, which is important also for your morals, moralities. But on the other hand, it is also extremely important to understand, and that's, I think that's what's, I don't know how many, but not that many of us understood at that time, that if the Cold War system was going to change, and in a fundamental way, then it should come from Eastern Europe. Then it should, in the end, come from Eastern Europe, not from the West. And that's what happened. And I think it's extremely crucial that you know, I mean, that you have to take, and, f and for me that meant, for her as well, by the way, that meant that you have to take sides with the East Europeans. 
it's more important than uh, even nuclear weapons on Western soil. There, it, it was possible to change. That's one thing. The second thing, her point about friends and enemies, she doesn't like that. Uh, although she's my friend and not my enemy. And, uh, um, but you know, I mean, I can't, let me just tell you a very simple story. Uh, I was four years old and um, my father was in the resistance movement in the Netherlands against the German occupiers and we were evacuated and staying in the north of the country and the Germans came in now and then to interrogate my mother because they wanted to find my father and kill him and the interrogations, I remember the interrogation because I was there at my mother's hand and I later on asked her was that true or is it my fantasy and she said no you were there because I thought if I had this little boy in my hand, the Germans will not touch me. Which they didn't, but they did something else. They couldn't find my father because my mother didn't, want, didn't give any answer. But they took my uncle, who was a small grocery, and killed him instead of my father. Those guys are my enemies. In that sense, and you have to talk about friends and enemies. And, uh, and so there are enemies and hopefully a lot of friends as well. But not only friends and enemies, that's my point. Not that there aren't enemies, but there are friends, there are colleagues, there are um, uh, competitors, there are partners, there Absolutely. are husbands, there are wives. And my point is <laughs> that when you have a war, you divide everything into friends and no, enemies. No, 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 no. That's no, no, no. Nobody's doing yeah. that. <laughs> Would you like to say something before? I think I must be parting last. words of, of, of wisdom. Just a, 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 a word about Mary, because I haven't said anything about you. And in uh, my uh, few minutes, I think we came to the LSE at about the same time, you, I think a few months before, and we soon embarked on the Global Civil Society yearbook with Amalis. Uh, I was always the, more on the boring side because I had to look after the data and there was the methodologist. And, but what I've learned from, uh, from Mary is that uh, in a way she's always uh, a step ahead. Uh, she started mentioning that NGOs are part of a, that they're also part of a problem in global civil society. When, when I was busy calculating the number of NGOs and densities of NGO flows of funds and all of that. So you were part of that argument when uh, certainly I was way behind you. <laughs> and this uh, project now that uh, you briefly described in your presentation, uh, subterranean politics, uh, when I first heard it, I said, oh yes, let's, uh, let's go back to social movement theory, right? Here you have 25 hypotheses and throw them at uh, <laughs> Occupy movement. And she said, no, they're about something else. Right? And now she's making an argument that increasingly convinces me that uh, there may be something new there. Right? So that's what I've learned, Mary. Good. Okay. Thank you very much. I think uh, our uh, time is up, so I'll be strict on the the question size, but what I would like to say, I think this comment, Helmut's last comment about the NGOs, in a way really captures 
uh, what Marlise and I have tried to do with our agency approach. Because from the end of the communism to 20 years later, we've gone through this period of disillusion with the NGOs. So we've come from people to people. And one of the ambitions that we had was to try to identify this source of emancipatory politics, yeah. how you can tap it and where it is. But the book also has some very, uh, so I would say, unsavory stories about the negative, immoral, nasty aspects of agencies that can creep into this conflict, the post-conflict zones, not just through violence, but also through long shadows of violence that they leave on these post-conflict spaces. And for example, Vesna and I have a chapter on, uh, on a political economy perspective on how then the whole state continues to be undermined. And, and unfortunately, you could see the same dynamics in Iraq and uh, those on emerging in, in Libya. So I just hope that if you're interested, you can tap into the book and you'll find uh, some inspiration. And we'll pass on, actually, inspiration that we had for making this book to you. Uh, I should also announce that uh, uh, there is a, a book selling downstairs. If you can afford, you can welcome to buy the book. And I was also told that the book signing will take here, but given the nature of the book, I'm not sure who, who should sign it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so if you're interested in the book, um, and of course it, uh, it will be in our library, uh, thank you to all our contributors and the audience. Thank you very much.